0: how's everybody doing tonight yes indeed man i like it when you guys show up but i gotta be honest i I like it a lot better when jesus shows up (laughs) they hang out together a lot (laughs) they they do so today's date is july the 6th 2016 and the title of today's message is one life one family one nation say amen Amen. Let's get started in the word. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1. Say there when you are there. 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 Amen. So Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, leave. Everybody say leave. Leave. It's an important part leave your country your people and your father's household and go everybody say go, go. to the land i will show you let skip down to verse four so abram did what left everybody say left. left as the lord had told him and lot went with him abram was 75 years old when he set out from haran where we're going to begin tonight is the first section of the title of our message, One Life. As we look around in the room, everyone sitting here has a personal testimony that relates to Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, and verse 4, your action of obedience that completes it. But here's a couple of things that I want to review first. Let's go back to verse 1 of Genesis 12, if you could put it back up here on the big screens. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country. Well, back in February 17th, 1993, that's incredibly ancient to this section right here. I was 16 years old, and Jesus, through a series of events, caused me to hunger and thirst for him. That included everything that I tried to participate in the world it had a, a substance to it. It had a satisfaction, but it was only temporal. And what that resulted in was a deep, hollow void in the center of my being. And am I just crazy that I think I'm the only one that, before Jesus, it felt like there was a, a, a black hole that would consume anything that you threw into it? Can you guys bear witness to that? And as time went by, leading up to that one night at February seventeenth, that hole just begin to grow more and more intense. And what God did is that he put people and events in my path that would lead me to hear the good news that was to be preached to the poor. And that was me. I was poor and devoid of life. I mean, to the point where at 16 years old, I'm contemplating suicide. I had tried, at least dabbled as much as I could and as my age would allow the things that the world had to offer Jesus met me in my bedroom and what I mean is a couple of days prior I went to this thing that we called a Sadie Hawkins dance and this is where the girls ask the guys to the dance no it does not particularly in my household you'll never ask a guy to the dance so we go to this dance I mean, come on, I'm I'm a sophomore in high school. This is the time of my life. I'm no longer, you know, the low-end dirt and squalor of society in a high school. Uh, Being being a freshman, that's another term for that. Now I actually have some clout and some status. I'm, I'm I'm on the football team. And here I get to spend time with my peers and just party. So we do the whole party thing, the dance and all that, and that's stories that you don't need to hear about. But late into that evening, there was that vortex, that black hole. And everything that I just threw into it hours before, it consumed and it asked for more. I had zero life within me. Well, I called up my one friend who I knew was a faithful churchgoer who won many Bible awards for memorizing scripture, uh, but also would join me in my worldly endeavors of, you know, participation. And his name was Eric Stevens. So we went to the same high school, and I called him at 3 a.m., and I said, I said, look, bruh, I got to go to church. I'm tired of this. And all I knew is that I needed something other than what everything else the world had to offer had given me. So I called him, and, you know, Eric, uh, very egregious to, to call me back at 6 a.m. in the morning. He woke me up. We went to church. He was, you know, taking the heathen into the building of the Lord and there was going to be a salvation that day. Well, we we go through <laughs> We go through the service and I won't say the name of the church but it was first something. But anyway, we're sitting in that service and I'm looking around and I see just the same level of death that I just walked out of 8 year 8 hours prior to that. I'm going, I don't want anything that this institution has to offer. Uh, My brother's doing his best, but uh, this isn't it. So we go to Sunday school. Now, I I grew up mainly Catholic, but what I mean by mainly Catholic is mainly going to church once or twice a year. Easter a a must, otherwise my grandmother would kill me, and possibly December for Christmas. So I'm sitting here in the Sunday school. I'm bored out of my mind, and as well, recovering from uh, events the night before. And I'm falling asleep. I'm not paying attention. On the way out, I remember them uh, hearing them tell me about a jambalaya raffle. And they hand me this pamphlet. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll help your church out, and I'll sell tickets for a jambalaya raffle. I put it in my back pocket. Two nights later, February 17, 1993, it's a tract, a pamphlet about Jesus called The Four Spiritual Laws. I read it, and the Spirit of God takes those words and makes them not only jump off the page, but jump off the fit page and do a right hook across my face. And at first, it was a mirror reflecting the state of where my life was. You know that repentance precedes power? That You cannot give somebody the transforming power of God until they first come face to face with their true condition of their sin. That's what God did to me in that pamphlet in my bedroom that night. And when we got to the very end, uh, I realized I'd made a mess of my life because I was the king of my own life. And the only way for it to be restored was that Jesus alone could be the only king of my life. So then what I did is I, at the very end, went back to my Catholic roots. And when you pray, you pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed. But when you're reading the Lord's Prayer, you have to have at least one eye open. So with one eye open and one eye closed, in reverence to the Lord, I read the Lord's prayer, but I remember in that moment, the spirit of God was not only just prompting me, he was tugging me that you have to give it all. There is no median ground here. So when I got to the point in that Lord's prayer, which was a little bit unorthodox compared to most that I've read, it said, take the throne of my life. This was the point of absolute surrender to the king of kings. And in that moment, there was you know, rain and thunder happening in, around our house at that time, but a huge clap of thunder hit, and the presence of God descended upon my bedroom, and he filled me. He transformed me. I became a completely different human being. I didn't turn a new leaf. I became an entirely new species. I knew it. Number one, because let's go back to this idea or or what's laid out in Genesis 12, 1, leave your country. You know, what we experience with Jesus is not just a private occurrence. Religion is not private. Because my relationship with the living God is on full display at all times. So what was required of me is that in that moment, what happened in the secret recesses of my room, the transforming power of God made me into a new creation. I immediately came into conflict with what my country, my world around me had told me I needed to be. I was no longer of its kingdom. So there was separation between me and that kingdom. Well, I could stop right there and continue to be who, all, who I've always been. But then that would put me in conflict the next day at at school with the people. What that meant that as all the friends that I had, now there would be a disparity. This is when later on Eric would would tell, and he had let him tell a bit later on uh, tonight as well. When he looked at me, he saw that I had changed. Not just morphed, but I was transformed into something totally new. I remember looking in the mirror that night. And I looked into my eyes. Not only did I see an absence of death, I saw Jesus inside of my eyes. I knew it was somebody else. That put me in conflict with the people at school. Well, then comes the last litmus test. Household. The way that you know that someone's life has been transformed by the power of God. Is when your own mama can testify that you've been born again. If your mama can't say that you're born again, then you're probably not. Because no longer did my mom have to wrestle with my slightly rebellious or contentious nature. Mary, I cleaned my own room and she didn't have to tell me. I picked up my dishes. I picked up my shoes. I remembered to take my keys with me. I took out the trash. All of this without being asked. That's a transforming power of God for a 16-year-old young man. That's right. You can say it again, girl. So I fell in love with the king of kings, and now I hungered and I thirst for righteousness. And as I came into conflict with each one of these areas, there was an act of obedience that Jesus required me to do. So I was able to be baptized in front of my entire student body, 500 kids ages K to 12 and faculty. And I remember that moment when I was holding on to the back of the pew. I loved Jesus. I was transformed. But he said, step out and you go down there now. And my first thought was, Lord, but there's only two people down there and they're both extremely nerdy people. And he said, If you are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father. And I said, I have no other choice. So I went out and I I went down and was able to be baptized. I was also in direct conflict with my family because none of my family were born again. And what that led me to is a series of years of conversations where I had to leave my father's household. I no longer was welcomed or found pleasure in the things that they wanted to do. On Sundays, they want to watch football games and barbecue. I want to be with the people of God. But I left it because there was a better promise.
1: The gospel in its essence is always a story about leaving something and going where the Lord tells you. Look at Matthew 4 and verse 21. Say there when you're there. There, there, there. There, there. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee preparing the nets. I'm sorry. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The call of the gospel is about denying yourself, taking up a cross and following him. It will always separate you from everything, but it's not the end of the story. Amen.
2: If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 18, the New Testament book of prophecy speaks to the exact same thought. Revelation 18 and verse four. It says this, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues for her sins are piled up to heaven. It says, come out of her, my people. That's the exact same thing when whether we're studying in Exodus and watching God's people leave Egypt. And then God start working to get the Egypt out of his people. This is always the call of Christianity. It says, it says, come out of her. Come out from, if you try to hold on to where you are. If you try to hold on to those things of the past, you cannot please God. You cannot be both light and dark. They can't be both fresh and salt water coming from the same fountain. The Lord says you have to come out and be completely different than what you were before, else you've not really changed.
1: Sometimes we're not talking about a fishing boat or a father or an athletic program or a peer group. Sometimes it's something like this. This is 2 Timothy, the first chapter. In the eighth verse. Say there when you're there. Go on, girl. She got a faster Bible than the rest of y'all. Need to work on your transmission. You didn't catch that, did you, buddy? It's a little double entendre with transmission, but it's okay. So do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me. Somebody say, join with me. join with me. Join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. You are called to lead a holy life. So the very first thing that you leave behind when the transforming power of the gospel grabs hold of you, is you leave behind your old life. That means that you're going to leave behind a country, a people, and a household. Now that you're Christian, your race comes second. Now that you're Christian, your nationality comes second. Now that you're everything is second to Christ. Can you say amen to that?
0: You know, one of the aspects that... Uh, in that first year that I was born again that I had to learn was that there's a cost that we I had to pay. There was a cost I had to pay that moment that I surrendered my all to Jesus that night. And as a result, I experienced the transforming power of God. But that wasn't the only time that that cycle had occurred. My life in Jesus has been a constant Rotation of I step out in obedience and faith to God's word that has come to me. It requires an anticipation of suffering, but a reciprocal effect of the transforming power of God. Amen. Amen. It sustains you through that suffering.
2: That reminds me of uh, of this passage. Uh, if you'll put Genesis eighteen nineteen on the board. We were able to talk uh, a while we the pastors and our families were able to get away a little bit last week And one of the things we did besides sit around and listen to Nick sermon from last Wednesday and be incredibly blessed and hear the testimonies of Peyton and the worship team. That's why we had to get them to do it again We heard it was so good. We just didn't want to be left out. So uh, and we're glad that we did that um, we, we actually just sat around one evening and we shared our testimonies We've known each other for almost 20 years uh you guys have known each other over 20 years and i just realized i was like you know i'm not sure that i know the full story uh, we've heard bits and pieces i've heard them share in many places and many times but we thought it was important just tell me tell me start at the beginning and tell me where that goes tell me what the lord has done in your life it's amazing uh as we were doing this just how the lord brought up this idea of one life one family and one nation we could see it being poured out in our own lives How God divinely had connected us in the same city, knowing some of the same people. Long before I met these two guys, I could see uh, (laughs) Pastor Matt actually ended up in my brother's home with a friend of his trying to find out about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I had no idea. I mean, these things, we're circling around each other. God is starting to intertwine lives and intertwine destinies throughout this time. And one of the things that that we talked about was this verse in Genesis 18 and verse 19. It says this, for I have chosen him. Everybody say "chosen chosen him. God always chooses one life so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right. And just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. This connection between God choosing us as an individual, but the choice in the the him choosing us, if it's like Abraham, is because he would direct his family, his children and his household. I never noticed it before. Or maybe it it just came back to me today that you realize there are two words there. It's not only his children, but what else is it? So what's the difference? One is a natural kind of blood that comes in, your children. And other is those that you become responsible for in your life. God wants you to not only raise your children, but he wants you to raise a household that glorifies him. This church is one of the best I've ever seen at having people come into and underneath a household and being trained. How many of you have ever had anyone live with you for more than a few weeks at a time? OK, this this is what this is what we're talking about here is we're tr- making this transition into one family. Um, as I was growing up, I have a, a, a very different testimony. and That's I love how the Lord has the variety. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a very dysfunctional Christian home. And it was always on me. I felt like from a very, very early age and I never understood it. But I was having to fight for my family from a very early age. I was having to fight for, um, to put things in the right order in my home. Um, if you'll turn to Joshua chapter 10 and verse 38 and 39. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Joshua chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Bible says this, then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. Uh, by the way, in Joshua chapter 10, if you look at the beginning of Joshua chapter 10, what do you find? You find that the sun has to stand still for the people of God to win the battle. And then you find five kings that Joshua and his people are having to conquer. And this is the story when they have, to, when uh, Joshua calls all the men of the nation to come and put their boot, come and put their foot on the neck of these kings. This is the story that's leading into this. Can I encourage you that fighting for your family is always going to be a bigger battle than you expect? It's going to be a bigger battle than you expect. If you, (laughs) I remember times where I was dealing with my dad as an adult, myself, an adult child dealing with my father, and I would get so frustrated because of some of the things that would go on. I'd be frustrated with the fact that he would open accounts in my name and ruin my name. (laughs) I would be so frustrated with certain things, but then I understood, and my wife was so wonderful one day, she said, why do you expect it to be different than what it is? Why do you expect it to be easy and not a battle to fight for your family? And I went, oh. Sometimes we get discouraged in what's going on. We've had conversations, endless conversations the past few days with different people from different cities in different circumstances, and the common thread has been, We're tired of having to fight for our family. Shouldn't it be easier than this? Shouldn't this be easier on us than what it is? And these few passages, I want to encourage you with it. There's always going to be a battle for your family, but it's worth it. It's always going to, if it takes you years, it's worth it. This is the kind of church that we say, we're not just going to look at the mountain and tell it to be removed. If that is the the path that the Lord has for us, we're going to say, Lord, give us a shovel while you're at it. If it takes the rest of my life, I'll move this mountain if you tell me that this mountain needs to be moved. A shovel-ready job. Amen. Joshua chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. So they've been battling. The sun stood still. They've conquered five kings. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it. Everybody say everyone. everyone. They totally destroyed. Everybody say totally destroyed an absolute victory. There's nothing in this passage that makes you think there was anything other than total victory. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its kings as they had done to Libna and its kings and to Hebron. So we see here that they take this city. And by the way, the name of this city right here, the name Debir means a a city of sanctuary. It's a sanctuary. Now let's turn to Joshua chapter 15 Verse 13 through 17. Five chapters later, right? In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Caleb is one of my favorite people in the whole Bible. If you want to hear more words from him, you can look in Joshua 14. I'm 85 and I'm as strong now as I've ever been. I'm ready to go and fight for what the Lord has said to me. Do you think he understood this one family principle? 85. He's not deterred by it. He said, I'll keep fighting for this family. I'll keep fighting for what God has promised me. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunah, a portion in Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, three giants, Shishai, Ahman, and Talmai, descendants of Anak. From there, everybody say from there. from there. He marched against the people living in... Wait, I thought in chapter 10 we destroyed everyone that was living there. I thought we had totally annihilated every person with the sword. However many years later this is, guess what they're having to do again? Again. They're having to fight again for the same land, for the same space. They're having to go back in and reacquire what the Lord has already given, what the Lord has already promised, what the Lord has already bestowed, but they had to keep fighting for it. This town was formerly called Kiriath Sefer, which means the city of the book. As a family, we're going to have to constantly keep fighting to have the city of the book. We're going to have to find God's standard of holiness in us, and we have to keep going back to this so that there's a standard that we keep going back to. The city of the book, we have to go back and find God's sanctuary again because it doesn't just stay that way without you having to work the area. If you ignore, if you think that you can conquer one time, and get to a time period of sanctuary, of following the book in your family, and then you're done, you don't understand God's transformational power in your family. You will have to go back and conquer it again. And you know what you're going to have to do? Conquer it again after that. You know what you're going to have to do? Keep going back to be a person of the book, a family of the book, so that you can keep going. A few more verses. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter... Axa: in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. Athenel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Axa to him in marriage. Just real quick about Athenal. <laughs> this is a relative of Caleb. He's already a family member, but you know what he realizes? He's not a close enough member yet. He actually becomes a surrogate son, a son-in-law to Caleb. He comes in and says, I will go out and I will fight and I will reclaim what this family already owns, what this family already has. I will go fight for it because I want to get even closer in this family than what we had before. Come on, guys. You can be even a part of the family, but Lord is always looking for those to be like Caleb and like this family that they get even closer in what he's doing don't be far off don't think it's okay to be in an extended part of the family the Lord allows us to get as close as we desire he allows us to get as close as we want to get
0: that makes me think of a, a message that Pastor Eric preached a while back called entropy and that what we're surrounded by is a constant decay well when I hear pastor Wade talk about fighting for the book and fighting for our family in that, that, that aspect. Think about the day and time that we live in now. What, was, what we're warring against on a constant basis is a redefinition of what our family looks like. So let's go to Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 32 and read to 35. What we have in our day and time is a redefinition of what gender is of what family is supposed to look like. And the world is trying to constantly reconstruct or deviate from what God's word already says a family should be. And what we just read in Joshua is an example of the way that God shapes families. And here, Jesus makes it even more clear. So we'll start in verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother.
1: You know, while we're talking about redefinitions of family, In seeing a man like Othennial grafted into Caleb's family. Or seeing a man like Pastor Piro grafted into the body of Christ. Ultimately, this is going to come down to just one thing that says which family you're in. The New Testament book of prophecy. Revelation in the 12th chapter. And the 17th verse. Turn there and see what it says. Don't get tired on me, youth group. I'm closer to reach you than ever before. (laughs) Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. One of the things that I love about Pastor Sutherland is the life-changing power of the king at work in his life has affected his entire family in every way. I'm with him when they call for godly advice. I'm with him listening to the testimonies of how he really stepped in and helped shape his family from an early age in life. The power of the gospel doesn't just change one life. It will always spread to the lives most closely associated with you. So the separation that Matthew experienced from country people and household, it didn't last. He eventually saw family members born again, and then God added to him others. Amen.
0: You know, one of the things that uh, I I loved to experience earlier on, while I was uh, when I was first born again, was being able to find people that I could look in their eyes. And I could see the same Jesus inside of their eyes that I saw inside of mine. And that endeared me to them. I wanted to make every opportunity to bless them. So let's go to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. We'll read more about this. Say there when you are there. Come on, there's no prison ministry this morning. Had all day to drink coffee. Get Starbucks on your way here. Stay alive with me now. You didn't during work. No. Yeah, come on. Shabbat. Therefore, Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity. Everybody say Opportunity. Let us do good to all people. So that's a clarifier. All people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What I experienced when I was first born again was a temporal loss, but then became an eternal gain. That no matter where I went throughout the entirety of the world, I could meet the family of God and I would look forward to blessing them as they have blessed me. So, what we're saying is be encouraged. If you came
2: from a great family, you should feel blessed. If you came from a terrible family, that is no excuse for what you can accomplish in your life through obedience in Christ. Because your acts of obedience, leaving whatever it takes, produces a family. You build your own family. Through your children and those in your household. Those natural, that natural seed is. And those who come under your influence that you can show and you can model and shape and form them so that they have the impact of shaping those around them.
1: So let's recap a few things that are on the board before we move forward. We're we're going to get to judges, the third chapter here in just a second. Joshua in the 10th chapter creates a total victory in Joshua 10. We're not turning there. Pastor Wade referred to it earlier. Total victory, but he invited every single Israelite to put their foot on the neck of the enemy. Jesus Christ earned a total victory, but he's invited every single believer to put their foot on the neck of the enemy. You did not win the victory any more than those Israelites won the victory. Joshua won it or Jesus won it, but it was given to you, right? One life can make an extraordinary difference. A man like Caleb believed that promise, just like Pastor Wade believed the promises of God. And when he believed that promise, he had a couple problems. Number one, he was 85, but that wasn't too big of a problem. Number two, there were giants, but that, that wasn't too big of a problem. Number three, how do you build a family when he only had daughters? His name would die out in Israel. But it turns out that because he was a man of conviction, because he believed the promises of God, a young man named Othiniel, who was a distant relative, wanted to be closer. And so he married a daughter. He became a son-in-law to Caleb. say, well, that's neat. Caleb got his family. No, one man's life will always affect a family, and a family on fire for God will always affect a nation. In Judges 3... The young man that Caleb took in, the one that married his daughter, the one that was in the same house with that giant killing spirit, that conviction of the Holy Ghost. In Judges 3, what is your title above the seventh verse? Somebody call it out. Othiniel. Do you know why? Because Othiniel didn't just stay a son-in-law. He became a judge of Israel. The man single-handedly saved the nation. You can trace that back to the conversion experience of Caleb. You can chase that back to the family that God built through Caleb. So now we have a man, Othenio, who grew up in a family that wasn't his, a family that God gave him. Just like Pastor Matthew and Pastor Wade were saying about Mark 3.32 and Galatians 6.10, there is a family that is the family of God. And when we grow up in it, it is a nation-changing family. Somebody say amen in the house of God. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Risha, rishathaim king of Aram, Naharaim. Now, I, I get when you hear that word, you're like, where is that? What is that? Aram Naharaim. Well, that's where Carol Gretsch lives. It's northwest Mesopotamia. So maybe Othiniel didn't make a big difference to you, but it makes quite the difference to her. To whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for them. Somebody say a deliverer. deliverer. Othiniel, son of Kines, What is he called? A son, because you are who you act the most like. You have the right to become a son of God. All you have to do is be born of his nature and act like him. Your family changes when you change. Amen? Amen. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. What came upon him? The Spirit. the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge. And he went to war. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, you go to war and you go to war because your life's now been changed, you can't sit back any longer and watch other people suffer under oppression. And when you begin to build a family like that, Kiriath Sefer, that Pastor Sutherland was telling us about, the city of the book, you build your family around the holy writ. When the Bible says it, you do it. When the Spirit of God comes on you to show you how to act, All of a sudden, the family begins to be directed towards a nation. The one life was Abraham. The one family was Caleb's family. And Caleb's family saved the nation in the book of Judges. I'd like to talk to you for a minute about one nation. This is coming from Psalm 67. Those of you who are Bible students might notice that each of us has begun with a law a prophet, and now a writing. The Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. In Psalm 67, let's look at the first verse. May God be gracious to us. Somebody say, be gracious, be gracious. To, us to us. And bless us. Bless. Bless. Oh, what's wrong with you tonight? Come on, look. I'm going to get down here right by, by Buddy Brasso. I'm going to show you what to do. Pastor? Read that verse May God be gracious to us, bless us, shine on us. <laughs> all right. Now I show you how to do it. So I want to hear it. May God be gracious to <laughs> <us>. and bless <laughs> us. and make his face shine on. <laughs> us. Oh, there we go. I want to make sure you were still with us. Now there's a reason for all of those things. You want those things, not because you're selfish. That's what you were when you were in the wrong country with the wrong people in the wrong household. You want those things because now you're born of a different country, a different people, and you're a member of God's household. So you want those things for the nations of the world, which is verse 2. That your ways may be known on earth. Whose ways? God's. Your salvation among the nations. When God saved you, he had families in mind. When he begins moving in your family, he has nations in mind. Can somebody say God's plan's, bigger than me"? God's plan's bigger than me? I began to wake to this idea. And as I did, it revolutionized our lives. You have to understand, I am the last pastor saved up here. I am the least likely of the pastors to have even been saved, much less become a pastor. You know, Pastor Sutherland was busying himself with academics. Pastor Pirro was busying himself with athletics. I was busying myself with debauchery. And if you don't know what that is, it's good. Don't look it up. <laughs> pastor Piero may have had little scabs on his fingers from learning to play guitar and Pastor Sutherland calluses from turning pages in a book. I had scars on my fist for different reasons. And when the Lord saved me, he had something in mind. Somewhere around 2011, he began to share this with me in a new way. I began to understand that all Christians are supposed to be a spring that feed the nations. We began looking further, going further, stretching out further. So that now this congregation is really all about raising up fivefold ministers for the worldwide harvest. Yeah? Why was there no amen for that except from a missionary? This is an interesting time in our church body. And it's an interesting time because we are asking God to bless us for one reason and one reason only. We want to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So let me ask you, are any of you dreaming of a changed world? That changed world begins with your changed life. That's where it starts. And then you demonstrate your capacity to do that in your own family first. I'm tired of pastors who preach well from the pulpit and live poorly in their own living rooms. We're going to raise up men that are so thoroughly changed. It's like yeast working through a whole batch of dough. Their families are affected by it. Some of you are discouraged because your families are not responding. God will give you Athenians. Don't you worry about it. You worry about having a life that is so on fire for the Lord. Others are drawn to it and something will happen. He will equip you and he will begin to focus you upon the nations. Would you like to see Jesus Christ's name made famous around the world? Because Jesus Himself talked about these things. Yeah? How about that? Pastor Wayne. Man.
2: (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) In John chapter 10, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 10, starting in verse 16. We're going to read 16 through 18. John 10. 16 through 18 says this, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This is the idea that Jesus is saying in red letters in our Bibles. He's saying that I have others Not only am I worried about this family, not only did I start with one life, but I'm worried about these others who were here because there's one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Wow. Out of all the things that Jesus could have said about why the father loves him, he says it's because I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. For us to reach the nations, this is the exact same attitude that we should have. Not only is it in Philippians 2 where this attitude, this let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This idea that outside of the flock we have to have constantly a vision in our hearts for us to see the not just the us, But the them, we have to constantly be looking out and saying, Lord, I'll lay down my life. Lord, would you use us to reach the nations? Lord, would you move upon us? (laughs) Lord, not only in our life, not only in our family do we beseech you, Lord, but we cry out to you, Lord, for, for this, for the nations that we can make an impact there.
1: An example of this, Jesus saying things like I have sheep, not of this flock, right? Think of one life like Mario Salinas. How many of you know who Mario Salinas is? Cody, do you know who Mario Salinas is? So somewhere around, I don't know, eight years ago, uh, a couple boys ended up orphaned. And they found their way to my home and became my sons. Around that very same time, a concern for the nations of the world caused us to run into a man named Mario Salinas in Mexico. Now, when I put my hands on Mario to pray for him and, and speak to him, I started to prophesy about a wife and children. He said, hold on, I'll go get them. And he went and got them, and they their little stair-step girls right there. And the Salinas family began working in ministry that day as an answer to a prophetic call. From that moment forward, nearly every month, our church has worked hand-in-hand with theirs to, number one, make sure that the family was raised in a godly way, to, number two, make sure they were affecting the world around them. Now those girls are not so little anymore, and one of them happens to have fallen in love with my son, and my son with her. This is one life affecting one family And it will yield a harvest in the nations. Can I tell you that the Lord cares about every tribe, tongue, and nation? Do you care about every tribe, tongue, and nation?
0: All right, show of hands time. Raise your hand if you're sitting in this room, obviously. I don't know why I just said that. For those of you sitting in this room that were not born in this country, Look around. These are folks that God has brought to this place at this time, an assembly, not of every tribe and tongue and nation, but we're getting there. It's getting close. Yeah, that folks. I was going to say, yeah, that you can't raise your hand for that one. Technically, it is another country altogether. Well, speaking of certain types of relationships in the assembly of nations we also have in our midst a young man that was born in Egypt a young woman who was born in Switzerland and God connected them in Egypt and has reunited them here in the United States and what we're going to celebrate a couple of weeks how many days Ibrahim how many amen How many hours? I thought you would have had that by now. We're going to celebrate the assembly of nations with their marriage. I don't know if you guys know Ibrahim that well, but he's a very goal-oriented kind of guy. And when he has something in mind, he absolutely puts all of his effort to get it. Eve was the center of his target, and he put all of his effort to, to get her to be his bride. With that in mind, now let's turn to Revelation chapter 7 and we'll read verse 9. It's little little theirs of popcorn. Just got to wait a second until it stops and then you open the microwave. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Everybody say multitude. Multitude. That no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. What God's goal is, is that, Every human being of every tribe and nation hears not only of the good news, but experiences the transforming power that originates with one life because he wants to then use that one life to affect one family, that one family, one nation.
2: If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 16, Romans 16. Verses 25 through 27. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. You know what's interesting about this passage? Romans is considered to be a theological masterpiece. If you want to get into deep theological things, you study the book of Romans. So wouldn't it make sense that in the last few verses, the summation of the theological masterpiece, that we might be able to learn something from this. Amen? Take a look in verse 25. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, listen to this, so that all nations might believe and obey him. Wow. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The whole point of the entire gospel is that God so loved the world. He loved the entire world that he gave. That all nations might believe and obey. What an incredible summation in this beautiful book that says this is the point. This is the point that we progress from one life to one family to one nation. That is the goal of the, the entire gospel.
1: That might be why the Ketuvim, the writings, which were given to us by God. To show us how to walk out our faith in whatever context we are in. Contain the second Psalm and the eighth verse. Could we put that on the screen? It's a prayer. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. It turns out that when you take a man like Abraham in Genesis, you didn't just pick him to change his life, his circumstances, his purpose. You picked him because you wanted in Genesis eighteen nineteen, a passage in the law, you wanted Abram to raise up a family that would carry on his legacy and purpose. Amen? His family was bigger than just what he could accomplish. The law is ultimately about forming your heart. It's about forming something. And in the law, we see a passage about forming a man who would form a family. Amen? That took us to the prophets, the judges, the book of the Judges. The Navim are about directing uh, the heart and inclining the mind, soul, spirit. In the Judges, we used a transitional scripture about Othniel, a man who was affected by a changed life, became a part of a godly family. And what did he do? He saved a whole nation. That takes us to the writings. And in the writings, we see that the heart of every believer who wants to live a faithful life in their historical context is supposed to be asking for an inheritance from the nations. They're supposed to care about the souls of the people throughout the world. Now, when we do this, and I think you can see across the top, we have law, prophets, writings. Across the bottom, we have law, prophets, writings. And then in each section, we've shown you a New Testament law, the first five books, a New Testament prophet, and then the New Testament writings. What you will see It's the idea is thoroughly inundated into the Scripture. There is no part of the Scripture that doesn't contain the power to change a life, to transform a family, and to affect the nations. Can we all agree to that? I want a better agreement to that. Every doctrine that you find, every New Testament passage that directs your life, you can do this with. And tonight, We're going to finish with Acts 16. Could we go to Acts 16? And we're going to be in the first few verses. I want to show you an example of this that absolutely changed our lives and directed our ministry. When I got this revelation, I drove to go get Matthew uh, in another state. Wasn't a part even of this ministry. Some years later, while praying, uh, my wife saw a vision and we called Wade the next day. We understood that this was bigger than us. That what began with our lives being changed would grow into families that were changed and would have to be united to go after the nations. And I believe you'll see that in these verses. Acts 16, 1 through 3. He, who is the he here? It's the Apostle Paul He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Did we get in those first three verses that Timothy's father was a Greek? Paul's life was so transformed that Timothy wanted to be a part of Paul's life in the same way that Othinio wanted to be a part of Caleb's life. And so even though Timothy was not a blood relative to Paul, do you know how the Scripture refers to him over and over after this? His, not just his son. His true son. A son that would be more true than one that came from his own body because Timothy acted like Paul. Amen? When we consider that topic and we're looking at those things, you should notice that what God has actually done then is taken the, the conversion of Paul and he's forming a family around it. The family at this point in this passage consists of Paul, consists of Timothy, and a man named Silas, right? None of the three of them have, um, are blood related. But the three of them, and of course Luke, who is writing about it, are about to go after the nations. Look, in Paul, we see one life. In the group, we see one family. In the following verses, you will see one nation. Amen? Let's read some more.
2: Let's pick it up in verse 6. It says this. <laughs> Here you go. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit, from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Now the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul had seen the vision. Uh, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them.
1: Do you hear the us, us? The man from Macedonia in the vision said, come help whom? Us. When Paul's traveling companions heard the vision that Paul had, they said they had concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You hear the plurality in that? God is directing this newly formed spiritual family to a nation. But to win the nation, he's going to have to start with a single man. But the man would not be alone. There would be an us to come. Does that make sense?
0: So let's skip ahead to verse 22 of Acts 16. We'll read 22 through 24. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Everybody say stripped, stripped. And, beaten. and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was command uh, jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know, one of the aspects or the aspect about becoming a follower of Jesus and going back to the suffering that is uh, accompanied by his transformation power is that much like a kernel of wheat, before it's useful, it has to be stripped and it has to be beaten. When we come face-to-face with God's word and the reality of his transformation power, it's going to make our flesh revile. It has to die. And until we embrace with joy that opportunity to participate in being stripped and beaten, we then will not participate in the things that follow after.
1: They weren't just stripped and beaten. Where were they placed? In the inner cell. Not the outer. They put them in the deepest, darkest, nastiest part of a first century prison. Can anybody say that's gross? That's nasty. It's in the gross and nasty parts. It's when you are in the thick of what is difficult and you're singing hymns that people take notice. I I would just like to point out to those of you who are Bible scholars in here, it's not the only beating Paul ever got. But it is a beating that he didn't have to take. Say, oh, well, yeah, he made that choice when he left to go towards Macedonia, right? Well, he did, but he still didn't have to take this beating. In Acts 22, he stretched out to be flogged. And he said, is it lawful for you to beat me without a trial? I'm a Roman citizen. The man who was about to beat him got scared to death. And he said, I had to pay a high price for my citizenship. Paul said, I was born a citizen. They took the chains off of him right away. It is not lawful for this to happen. I believe that Paul allowed the beating, allowed the chaining in the inner cell because he knew he was right where he was supposed to be. What are you willing to endure for your calling? Are you only called as long as the sunshine is out? One of the saddest commentaries I've ever seen is that we can have a pro-life rally unless it rains because it's just not worth getting wet for. When your life has been so powerfully affected that the people around you are moved to action, then God will move you to the nations. Those of you with national callings in here, make sure you don't hope to be something there that you are not here. Here is the place to perfect it. Uh, Brent preached a fantastic message on that. Ready, set, go. Go.
2: I'm just reminded of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. I'm just, you don't have to turn there. It just says that Moses chose rather to suffer with God's people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. This is exactly what Paul does and he shows us the same thing, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. There's going to be, have to be a point where we choose the mistreatment rather than the pleasures of anything else. If it costs us that, if this is what God is telling us, this is our choice. This is what we choose to do because we serve a great God and we must we must do what he says, regardless of the cost in our life.
1: So when we're looking at Acts 16, 25 through 28, keep in mind from the previous verses that their feet were fastened, but they didn't have to be. They chose for them to be and consider where it is God has called you to stand fast. Know that you do have a choice. You don't have to be faithful to him. You don't have to suffer for him. You don't have to be obedient. Most of the world is not, and most of the Christian body is not, which begs the question if they're Christian. But those who have been transformed by his power form a spiritual family that want to be obedient even if they take a beating to get to the nations. Say amen one more time in the house of God. Here comes Acts 16. We're going to read 25 through 28. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and once all the prison, I'm sorry, at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. What were they doing in the middle of the darkest part of the night? They were singing praises, locked in an inner cell, feet fastened, stripped, and beaten. And what were they doing at the darkest part of the night? Praising. We're going to develop a character in this place that says I've been so transformed and my family has been so transformed that they can't lock you in a dark enough cell. They can't beat you hard enough or discourage you enough to keep you from praising. If you were beaten into a greasy little spot on the ground, that little greasy spot would yell out, I'm blessed and I'm going to be a blessing.
2: One of the things that stands out to me is I think it's in verse twenty six it says right in the middle of the verse, at once, all the prison doors flew open. (laughs) The the praise that we have that can shake whatever situation we're in, Acts 4 also says that, right? They were being bold. They were declaring God and they prayed so hard that the the building that they were in was actually shaken. And here it says, at once, all the prison doors flew open. Not just for Paul and Silas, but every prison door and every chain came loose from people. What a miracle that the prisoners didn't just take off and start running out. That's what the prison guard, that's what the the prison keeper was expecting to happen because that is the most natural thing that you can imagine. Wicked people thrown in jail and the doors come open and the chains come off. But you know what they realized? That they were more free sitting there in God's presence than they would have been had they run off somewhere. They stayed put because at once God moved and changed their situation.
0: You know, as I'm contemplating putting myself in that moment, and if I were been stripped and beaten, put in the inner cell, my feet fastened. It's in the middle of the night. We experienced earlier being led into the presence of God and as a collective body, having that, that phenomenal power of his presence this being a totally different situation in Acts chapter 16, my mind immediately goes to, how did the singing start? How does usually singing start? So did somebody walk up or just take their chains, you know, and like a maestro? Here we go. Everybody start to praise. Or was it like what we we normally experience? I don't know, when a wheel falls off your truck while you're trying to go up a bridge in Corpus Christi on the way back from a mission trip to Mexico? Something like that. And there's that that, that one lull of a moment where everybody's silent, and you're kind of wondering, all right, I want to say something that's really complaining right now, but I think it's sin if I do. And then one person in their group goes, Mmm. <laughs> Jesus on the main line. And immediately begins to, click everybody's heart in right order, it gets their attention focused on the bigger perspective, which is the kingdom of God, not my current situation. And the result are two things listed at the end of the scriptures that we read. And that's chain-breaking power, and that's earth-shaking power. Chain-breaking power that the chains that God has broken over you as you rejoice in the blood of the covenant that has set you free, then you take that power, put it in your feet, and you go shake the earth somewhere.
1: That's good, isn't it? You want to hear one more better? At the same time chain-breaking power was available, the lost man felt the sentence of death in his heart. He was about to kill himself. But the voice of a resurrection gospel called out and said, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Why do we want the miraculous power of God in our services? Because it's the same power that convinces the sinner that his soul is damned. And they can hear the voice of a, of a herald say, don't harm yourself. Life is on the way. Come on. Amen. Amen. Let's finish this passage and watch how these subjects all close together.
2: Let's start in verse 29. It says, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Lord replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. (laughs) This is the Macedonian man that we had seen before. At the beginning of the chapter in verses 6 through 10, we see that Paul had a vision. They were stopped from going certain places and directed by the Holy Spirit to come here. They were in prison because they knew that God had sent them here because someone's life mattered, because someone's family mattered, because there was a nation that needed to be reached. And so they chose to be chained. They chose to be stripped and beaten and stay right there even though they could have gotten out of it. Because God had already spoken to Paul, and he knew that he and his whole family of this jailer were on the line here, and it mattered.
1: So then, in a nutshell, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. They weren't allowed to go to Bisni or Mysia because that's not where Jesus was leading them. They were directed, not from Springfield, Missouri, or the Vatican. They were directed by the Holy Spirit of God through a dream. And when one man received that dream because he had already affected the family, they concluded the whole family had that calling. They went out to go find a Macedonian man. They met Lydia, a dyer of purple cloth, not a man. Maybe a couple more centuries, people would claim Something silly like that. But in this one, we still had gender specifics. While in prison, they have a chance to leave. But they won't do it because they hadn't got that one life yet. In the worst of the worst time, chain-breaking power, earth-shaking power shows up and the sentence of death enters into one man's heart but he hears the gospel of life. And we knew that we knew that we knew that one life changed would save his family. And it did. And you are looking at the first convert in Macedonia, and Macedonia became a Christian nation. Three-quarters of the churches of the book of Revelation are in Macedonia. And it can all be traced to this action. So what can your one act of obedience be traced to? What difference can your one family make? What if you sit out there and you don't have much of a family? Look around you, you have a spiritual family. We are life-changing ministries, and we are about one life, one family, and one nation, and that's at a time. After we conquer one, we'll move to another. Come on, somebody say amen in the house of God. We're going to move towards communion because we're a family. If you are in here and you're a guest tonight, if you are in love with Jesus Christ, if you're a member of the family of God, we do not have rules for you. The Bible issues a standard, though. It says to examine your own heart and your own mind. If judgment begins with the house of God, you will not come under judgment. Our intention in this meal is that when we leave here tonight, we will all be completely committed to the denial of self, to the taking up of the cross, and going to the nations. If it's your desire to be united in those things, then we want to take communion with you. I leave tomorrow for Chicago to one of our brother churches there, an amazing powerhouse ministry that was born right out of this ministry. And we're going to help them go to the nations because we're a family. But I'd like to be united, all of us, tonight. Do you want to do that with us? Look, my vote is for Pastor Wade.
2: My vote is for Pastor Matt.
0: Vote for Eric.
1: (laughs) The day of the super pastor and the mega ministry, in my mind, is over. We want to see ordinary men and women just like you, just like us, do extraordinary things for the Lord. And we believe you are the key to the nations. Could you stand to your feet?